when news of his arrest arrived, I was the least surprised. My mother outright denied the statement, simply refused even the suggestion that my father could commit such a heinous crime, as the one detailed by the reporting officer. My brother, two years younger and more inclined to my way of thinking, regarded the news as something to have been expected. My very young, vacant-minded sister failed to grasp the severity of the crimes, and simply took the announcement as something generally bad, the circumstances from which my father would assuredly free himself, as his made-up heroes had done during their father-daughter story time. He was being held without bail at the jailhouse about a 20-minute drive from our home, and at the demand of our mother, we all loaded up into the family SUV and drove to meet our intern dad. He sat alone in a spacious cell, presumably used to house multiple criminals in one room. Though our town wasn't known for criminality, or anything really, and looked very upset. His dark blue jeans had various cuts in the fabric, as if torn by fingernails, something my mother pretended not to notice. His black sweater had at some point been splattered by something, and since I didn't remember him leaving the home in the morning with any stains, I assumed they were obtained during his alleged criminal act. His skin, which had been almost orange from the unyielding summer sun, was now unbelievably pale, as if he had been dipped in white paint and left to dry somewhere cold and lightless. Black hair previously combed back now sat in a downward felled mass, covering his forehead and his right eye. He didn't seem to mind the obstruction of vision. The officer who had led us to his cell said we had ten minutes to speak with our father, and that due to the nature of my father's crime, he would have to remain in the corridor to supervise. We don't have a family lawyer. We never needed one, and the suggestion of an attorney's presence was either unheard or ignored by my distraught mother. My sister, finally realizing the realness of the situation, ran to my father and hugged him. He didn't seem to notice her embrace, nor our gathering in the room. He just stared at the floor, eyes set deep in his face, encircled by darkness born of tiredness or fright, while his mouth hung open and breathless. That's what unnerved me the most. In the large, quiet room where in any other city several prisoners would be held, but in this one, only our father resided. You could hear even the smallest sound. I heard my mother's unstable, ragged breathing, my brother's deep, self-calming respiration, and my sister's heavy gulps of air between her sobs. My own breathing was as steady as I could keep it, but no exhalations could be heard from my father. He just sat there, as motionless as a cadaver, staring into oblivion or gazing upon some remembered horror. When it became obvious that my father would not respond to our questions, of which there were many, even from myself and my brother, we left him alone and returned to the officer, who escorted us upstairs and into the lobby of the station. In another city, the building would have seemed underfunded, the officers ill-equipped to handle even a slow day's worth of crime. But in our town, the police openly expressed themselves to be bored out of their minds. Some even jokingly wished for an uptick in crime, but I highly doubt the charges laid against my father 
were what those sentinels of peace had in mind. They laid out the full details, and due to my father's lack of cooperation, hadn't felt the need to spare us the grislier aspects. They were furious with him, absolutely disgusted by what had transpired, and I realized that the suggestion of lawyering up was merely an admonishment of formality. They wanted my father locked up, or perhaps even dead. When all had been said, my mother had been given time to process what she had been told. We drove home in silence. During the ride, my sister stared out the window and pointed at random objects, mouthing imperceptible things to herself. Her child's mind wouldn't be able to fathom what she had overheard during our briefing at the station. My brother stared down at his hands, which rested palms down on his thighs, his face hard, unmoving. He was old enough to comprehend the things suggested, implied, and fully revealed. I could not see my mother's face, but I'm sure it was of a similar visage to my brother's, though probably masked to some degree by what she thought was a comforting, everything-will-be-all-right smile. My face was blank. I didn't need to come to terms with anything, and I had no difficulty in believing that my father could commit the atrocities of which he has been accused. I was aware of my father's predilection for violence. Six days ago, a girl had gone missing. Her name was Kelly, and she was 13 years old. We are the same age. The local news reported that she had wandered off from her short walk to school with friends after something in the woods caught her attention. The two girls with whom she had been walking did not follow her, even called out to her to return to the sidewalk but she ignored them. They ran to school and told the staff who ran into the woods, and when they could not find her, called the police, who dispatched several officers to assist in the search. After an hour with no success, the town was alerted to the situation, and a full search party convened and dispersed throughout the woods and outlying neighborhoods. Today, after yet another unsuccessful morning search, a man walked into the police station holding a large bag. The man knelt in the lobby of the station cradling the bag, eyes fixated on nothing in particular, but aimed at the general direction of the officers. They approached the man, asked what he held, and when he did not respond, they opened it. The reactions were what you'd expect them to be. After the immediate shock wore off, they issued somber pats on the back of my father, who still had not spoken. They initially thought that in some gravely fortuitous lone man's search, he had recovered the body of the missing girl. It was only when an officer noticed my father's hands and torn jeans that the atmosphere of the room dramatically shifted. Guns were raised and leveled at my father. Orders were barked aloud and into the radios and the gloom-befallen room was thrown into chaos. My father had, a tale reconstructed to the best accuracy possible given the evidence, abducted the girl during her sojourn into the woods, bisected her at the hips, hid in the lower half, and returned the upper portion to the station. The lower half, which was found in the rarely used freezer we kept in our basement, had been preserved for a hideous purpose. Apparently, the girl had been slain on the last day of her abduction, 
and my father had spent the previous few days behaving as if he had not been holding her captive somewhere. Where? We never found out. Why? He kept her for so long before committing his secondary crime? We don't know. Some people believe the whole thing was some prolonged episode of insanity, making the largely uneducated assumption that years of heavy drinking had warped his mind, while others think it was the first of what would have been many murderous indulgences, born of some genetic predisposition for savagery. My brother took offense at that, despite not having any knowledge to disprove the assertion. He was only eleven, and the seed of evil could very well be within him. I think that upset him more than the actual murder. The chance that he could one day carry out a similar act of diabolism. My birthday is in two days. Remember how I said I could very well believe my father had done such terrible things? Last year on my birthday, my father was late to my birthday party. He and my mother argued, and in my desire to have a birthday not ruined by fighting, I tried to break up the argument. My obviously drunk father pushed me and I fell down our stairs, fracturing my spine. I was rendered permanently handicapped. My mother, hoping to preserve the family unit, reported the incident as an accident, that I had fallen while excitedly running up the stairs to retrieve a present. I didn't deny the story, only because I wanted to believe it was just an accident, that he hadn't truly meant to push me with such force. Whether my father's recent actions were born of immense guilt or the sick joke of a twisted mind, I can't say. Because I don't know. He won't speak to anyone. And from what I've heard during my mother's phone calls with authorities, he won't be allowed back into civilization for quite some time. If ever. We plan on moving soon. I don't know if it'll be another small town but I don't think it'll matter anymore. Even the smallest, most remote place can have crimes as awful as those in any big city. But what keeps me up at night, what sends a chill through my inoperative spine, is the note that was attached to one of the poor girl's legs. It read, Melissa, I am sorry for what happened last year. Please forgive me. I got you some new legs. Just your size. I know they're not exactly the same, hers are a bit less toned, but it was the best I could do. I mean, she just stumbled into the woods while I was on my walk. I didn't even call out to her or anything. I hadn't thought of what to get you for your birthday that could make up for what I did last year. And those legs. Those legs, I just knew they'd be perfect for you. Please, Melissa. Understand? From Dad. Claremont Boulevard is an upscale cul-de-sac, located about 20 minutes down from my non-upscale street. The families who occupy the houses are the kind that own fancy SUVs and send their kids to camp for the summer. All the dads play golf, and the moms get together for brunch at some fancy, overpriced downtown restaurant, and then come back home and spend the rest of their afternoons tanning in their backyards 
while their lawn keepers trim the hedges to look like swans. It's not a place where I would usually be if it weren't for the fact that I babysit for one of these families, the Berkleys. My friend Myra set me up with this job. She teaches gymnastics to children and knows a bunch of families who are in need of babysitters and asked me to take the job so that she would be able to go to Disneyland with her new boyfriend. I agreed, seeing as though I had just quit my job and was in desperate need of money in order to pay for my upcoming semester at university. The Berkleys had offered me $17 an hour to babysit their 8-year-old twins, Rachel and Ryan. Apparently, their summer camp had been cancelled last minute due to some accident with some of the camp leaders or something like that. The job is pretty simple. I leave my house at 8.10am and I'm at the Berkleys by 8.30. When I get there, Mr. Berkeley leaves for work while Mrs. Berkeley gets ready to leave for her yoga class. Kids are already up at this time, eating breakfast. And at 8.55, Mrs. Berkeley leaves as well. I'm alone with the kids until around 1.30pm, but I don't actually leave the house until around 3pm, because Mrs. Berkeley tells me that she really needs a break after her stressful errands. I'm not complaining, though. I'm making a decent amount of money for doing the bare minimum. I don't really even have to do much else besides making the kids lunches and washing a few dishes. We spend the majority of the time watching movies or playing video games. Sometimes they beg me to get in the pool with them, which of course I do. I actually do like this job, and I'm getting paid a lot more than I was at my old job where I was yelled at by old people all day long. So this is definitely a step up. Besides, it's a very nice neighborhood where nothing bad ever really happens. Until today, that is. Today, at around 10 a.m., I was sitting outside on one of the lawn chairs by the pool, painting my toenails while Ryan and Rachel splashed around in the water. I noticed it was starting to get a bit cloudy. I could barely see what I was doing, so I took off my sunglasses, only to realize that it was actually pretty dark outside. I glanced up at the sky to see some dark clouds rolling in, as the summer breeze turned into a chilling wind. Hey guys, it looks like there's a storm coming. We should head inside for a bit, I called to the kids. They looked up at the sky as well, and then swam over to the steps and climbed out of the pool. I carefully stuck my feet back into my sandals and tried to quickly walk back inside without messing up the white polish. I closed the door behind me as Rachel and Ryan shivered, their blonde curls sticking to their faces. I grabbed their towels from the table near the door and wrapped each of them up, sending them away to take a warm shower as I made sure the doors and windows were closed. While I waited for the kids to get dressed, I looked out the sliding glass door as it slowly got darker and darker outside. It looked as if the sun was setting, but without any of the pretty colors, and more like if the sun was moving further and further away. The sound of the doorbell echoed through the house, making me jump. I stepped away from the door and slid the curtain back into place as I walked down the hallway and into the living room. I opened up the door to see Mrs. Kleppen standing on the front porch in her running clothes. Yes? I asked. I came to check on the children, 
she said in her very fake concerned tone. They're in the shower, I replied. Mrs. Kleppen stood up on her tiptoes and peered over my shoulders into the house. Humph. She blinked rapidly at me, which was Mrs. Kleppen's language for, I don't like poor people in my neighborhood. Anything else? I asked. It isn't safe in these conditions, and there appears to be a storm rolling in, she said. Well, if it isn't safe, then why would I drive? She took a deep breath, staring at me the entire time. Fine, she whispered. I'm going to call Celia. I don't think she would feel comfortable with someone like you being in charge of her children during this dangerous weather. Someone like me? I repeated. Oh, don't get offended. You know what I mean. She waved her hand towards me as if she was shooing away a fly. No, actually, I have no idea what you mean, I said. You just... Uh, you come from a different family. You, you wouldn't understand, she said. Okay, look, I have to go babysit these kids, and I don't think Celia would be very happy about you distracting me from my job. Have a nice day, Mrs. Kleppen. I shut the door in her face as she started to say something else. I walked over to check on the kids and found them in the TV room, trying to get the TV to work. I don't think that's going to work, guys. I think the storm might be messing with it. Ryan turned the TV off. Well then, what are we supposed to do? He asked. Well, we could play other games. Do you guys want to play Uno? I asked. I guess, Rachel mumbled. Well, we don't have to. You can choose, I said, sitting down next to her. I wanted to swim more, she said. Maybe we can go back after the storm, I suggested. Although, from the looks of it, that didn't appear to be any time soon. It was still getting darker outside, more so by the second. In fact, there seemed to be some sort of fog out there or something. I couldn't even see the tree that was a few feet out from the window anymore. I stood up and peered outside, squinting, in order to see anything at all. The houses were almost completely dark, and I couldn't really make out anything except very dimly lit windows from one of the houses across the street. I could see some sort of movement a few feet away, and as it got closer, I could see that it was Mrs. Kleppen. I rolled my eyes. How crazy was this woman that she was outside in this storm, just so that she could somehow get me to leave? What are you looking at? Ryan asked. I turned around. Miss Kleppen is out there just walking around, I said. Well, maybe she's lost, Rachel said. Yeah, maybe, I replied. I looked out the window again, but I saw nothing at all, only darkness. Hey, Ryan, why don't you turn on some lights? I'm going to call your mom and let her know about the storm, I said. I grabbed my cell phone and dialed Mrs. Berkeley. She picked up on the third ring. Hey, Rosa, how's it going? She asked. Um, pretty well, but there's some kind of storm coming in right now. I don't know how far away you are or if you can see it, but it's completely dark out here right now. I just wanted to let you know that it's probably not safe to drive over here until this clears up. I said as I watched Ryan and Rachel grab some coloring books and crayons from a shelf. All right, uh, thanks for letting me know. Just... Keep the kids inside and give me a call when it clears up. I'll call my husband, she replied. 
We hung up, and I spent the next few minutes coloring with the twins. About five minutes into it, the doorbell rang again. Stay right here. I'm going to go see who it is, I replied. I walked out into the living room and peered out the window, but I couldn't see anything. Not even the plants that sat out on the front porch. Suddenly, Mrs. Kleppen's face popped up, pressed against the window as she banged on the glass. Damn, I snapped, jumping back, my heart pounding as she continued to bang on the glass. Yoo-hoo, she called. I rolled my eyes and pulled the curtain back again. Yes, I asked. She smiled at me, which I had never seen her do before. I was just coming to check in on you, she said, still smiling. We're fine, I replied. She kept grinning. What was with this woman? Are you okay? I asked. Oh yes, I'm terrific. It's lovely out here, isn't it? She said. I looked around at the darkness that surrounded her. Uh, yeah, that's one way to look at it, I replied. You should come out here and bring the children, she grinned. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Mrs. Berkeley wouldn't like that, I replied. Oh, come on. It's lovely outside right now. Come out here and bring the children with you, she said. I'm going to go check on the kids, I said. I closed the curtain and walked back to the TV room, but I could hear Mrs. Kleppen knocking on the window faintly. Who was it? Ryan asked. Mrs. Kleppen... Uh, she was being weird, I said. She's always weird. Mom says she's a nosy, Rachel said. Yeah, <laughs> your mom is right, I replied. We managed to entertain ourselves for the next hour or so, until Ryan and Rachel got hungry. We made our way to the kitchen, turning on lights as we went, so that we could see our way around the house. I made them some sandwiches, as we sat around the kitchen table as they ate. When they were done, I washed the dishes and put them all away. And then we made our way back to the TV room. When we passed the living room, the doorbell rang again. Stay here, I said as I walked over and once again peered out the window. It was still pitch black outside, and I wasn't able to see anything. Rosa, it's me. Can you please open the door? Mrs. Berkeley said. I reached for the doorknob, but then I stopped. What happened to your keys? I asked. What? She replied. Your keys. You don't have them? I asked. Oh, no. I forgot them when I left, she replied. Please, open the door right away. I need to see the children. If you don't have the keys, how did you get here? I asked. There was something off about this whole thing, and while it was probably this fog that was making me paranoid, it was better to be safe than sorry. Besides, I hadn't even seen Mrs. Berkeley at all. I had only heard her knocking and her voice. And even though I couldn't see outside, I would have at least heard her car driving up into the garage, where she always parked. So what was she doing knocking on the front door? What do you mean, how did I get here? She asked. If you don't have your keys, how did you drive your car? I asked. That doesn't matter. Let me in. I need to see the children. She snapped, rattling the doorknob. 
I didn't reply and I stepped back from the door. Let me in, Rosa, she shouted. I looked over at the kids and motioned for them to be quiet and to go back into the TV room. They nodded and hurried down the hall. I'm sorry, I can't let you in. I'm not even sure it's you, I said. A banging sound on the window made me jump. I could see that someone was pressed up against the other side, but I wasn't able to make out any details without pulling the curtain aside. I was right. It wasn't Mrs. Berkeley. It was Mrs. Kleppen again. Listen, you little dick. Let me into this house right now, or I swear to God himself that I will kill you when you come out. Do you hear me? I'll kill you. She snarled. She even sounded like Mrs. Berkeley. What was going on? I backed away from the window, letting the curtain fall back into place. I ran back to the TV room. I had no idea what was going on out there, but something was not right. Mrs. Kleppen was a dick for sure, but not that much of a dick. I had never seen her like that. It was almost as if it wasn't even her that was in control of herself. I called the police who told me they would try to send someone down here. I warned them about the fog outside, and they told me that an officer was on the way already. I stopped looking out the window whenever the doorbell rang, even though it didn't stop for about 20 straight minutes, but the police never showed up. I could tell the kids were scared, even though they weren't acting like it bothered them. We sat in silence, staring at the coloring books in front of us. Suddenly there was a knock on the window. The kids stared at me and then over at the window. That particular window in the TV room was located towards the back of the house in the backyard, which meant that whoever was knocking on the window had climbed over the side gate and in the backyard. Kids, it's Dad. Open the door. I looked over at Ryan and Rachel, who looked as confused as I felt. I knew that Mr. Berkeley worked about an hour away from here, and there was no way that he would be back home before his usual time. I grabbed my phone and sent Mrs. Berkeley a text, asking her if she or her husband were on the way. She replied rather quickly, telling me that she was staying put until the fog cleared out and that her husband was in a business meeting. So then who was outside? Rosa, please bring the children out here, the person outside the window said. It sounded like Mr. Berkeley, but again, I was getting a weird feeling about this. I put a finger over my lips, and we slowly got up and made our way out of the room. Rosa, I know you're in there. Bring the kids out, the voice shouted. We kept going down the hall until we got to Mr. Berkeley's office, where I shut the door. What's going on? Rachel whispered. I don't know, but that's not your dad out there, I replied. Then who is it? And why does it sound like him? Ryan asked. I shrugged. Stay here. I walked out into the hallway and peered into the TV room. Whoever was outside the window was still knocking, but they weren't saying anything. I could hear a car starting outside somewhere and heard it racing down the street. Suddenly it was silent again, and I made my way down to the office. I opened the door and looked around the room. Where's Ryan? I asked Rachel, who was sitting on the couch. 
He went to the bathroom, she said. I looked down the hallway to the bathroom, but the door was wide open and there was no one in there. The sound of a door slamming shut from the other end of the hall made me look over just in time to see it close as Ryan ran out. I looked back at Rachel. Come here. You're going to grab onto my arm and you're not going to let go, okay? I said. She nodded, wide-eyed, as she grabbed my arm and we made our way to the kitchen at the end of the hall. I pulled the door open, letting in a harsh cold wind. I flicked on the switch that turned on the lights in the backyard, but they were nothing but small dots in the distance. Crap, I mumbled. Where's Ryan? Rachel asked. I don't know, I replied. Rosa, I heard him call. Ryan, where are you? I asked. I don't know, I can't see, he shouted back. His voice seemed to be coming from all directions, all at once. Just follow my voice, okay? Come on, I can hear you. I called out into the darkness. I kept talking out into the darkness until Ryan finally emerged right in front of me. I grabbed him and dragged him inside, locking the door behind him, right as Joel Sanders from down the street ran right into the door. God dang it, I breathed as I jumped in. It's Joel, Rachel said as I watched him pressed up against the small glass window in the door, grinning up at me. Hi, Rosa, Joel said. Hi? I watched as he shifted his eyes over to Rachel. I grabbed her and pulled her behind me. Can Rachel come out to play? He asked. Uh, not right now, I replied. Come on, let her out he said, still grinning. Maybe later, Joel. You should go home. It's not safe out. Joel banged on the glass with his head and the palms of his hands. Let her out! He screamed. I pushed Rachel back, and we all ran back into the office. We sat there as different neighbors knocked on windows and doors around the house, shouting. After what felt like years, everything got quiet. Look, Ryan pointed to the window. I turned to see that it was clearing up outside. I walked over and slowly pulled the curtain away. The sun was back and there was no one outside. I took the kids with me and we all walked over to the living room as I opened the front door and looked out into the street. I gasped and pushed the kids back inside, shutting the door once again. What was it? Rachel asked. Um, nothing, I replied. We waited inside the house in silence for a while, until finally the front door opened and Mr. and Mrs. Berkeley came inside, rushing towards their kids and hugging them. What happened out there? I asked. Mrs. Berkeley exchanged a look with her husband, but didn't answer me. Stay here, she said. I'll be right back to pay you. They took their kids with them as they left me in the living room. Curious about what I had gotten a glimpse of before, I walked out the front door and onto the driveway. There were bodies everywhere. On the street. On the front lawn. Everywhere I looked, there was a dead body. I kept walking down the driveway and onto the sidewalk, keeping a distance between me and the bodies. As I walked around my car... 
I jumped when I almost tripped over a body right behind it. I averted my eyes quickly, but the image was already burned into my brain. The body didn't have a face. I took a deep breath and made myself look again, and I realized that I had no idea who it was, and I knew almost everyone in the neighborhood. I forced myself to look at a few others, but none of the bodies had a face. I was able to recognize one, however. The tracksuit and shiny blonde ponytail were unforgettable. Mrs. Kleppen was on the Berkeley's front yard, dead. As I looked down the street, I recognized something else. There was a car in the middle of the road. The front and back of the cars were completely destroyed and dented inwards. I walked over to the driver's side and looked in to see a body there and in the passenger seat. Their faces were missing, but I knew for a fact that I recognized the car. I turned around and ran back into the Berkeley's house calling for Rachel and Ryan. No response. I ran out into the backyard and tripped over the body of two boys with missing faces. Rachel! I shouted. Silence. Rachel! I screamed. But again, there was nothing. I ran around the house and back to the front yard where I got into my car and backed out the driveway, wincing as I went over the body that was back there. As I pulled out into the street, I looked into the rearview mirror and almost screamed. In my back seat, there was a body of a little girl with a missing face. Thank you for making it this far. I hope you enjoyed the video. I just wanted to quickly let you know about a couple things I have going on. I have an Instagram where I post more personal things about who I am. It isn't just all creepy stuff. You can find me at Stories After Midnight. I also have a Twitter where I mainly retweet and like things I find interesting. The handle for that is in the description, but it is S underscore A underscore Midnight. I should really find another one because that's hard to say. If you really like what I'm doing, consider joining the Midnighters. That's my growing community where we hang out and have fun and talk about cats. You can find a link to our Discord in the description below. We'd love to see you there. Other than that, it'd make me happier than a cat on a table full of antique glassware if you'd like the video and consider sticking around for more. We'll see you in the next one.